Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have a forum where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to sports med, athlete rehab, and performance. We don't just discuss, we do other things. So to join the forum, and for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on the website. We got lots of the powerlifting courses and, and weightlifting courses coming up and uh, great webinars and, and online courses as well. So check those out. This podcast can also be found on the website along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. And a review is always welcomed and appreciated. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. I'm joined by Jared Maynard, who is a Clinical Athlete Continuing Education Director and Coordinator and a physiotherapist at King Physiotherapy and Foot Clinic in Ontario, Canada. He's a certified strength and conditioning specialist and runs an online powerlifting coaching company and is a competitive powerlifter himself. What's up, Jared? Not much, man. How's your day going? Day's going well, man. I spent the morning at the beach, listening to a podcast. And I walked up to my <laughs> office, and now I'm talking to you guys. It's been a great day. And I'm just happy to see the sun up here in Canada land. <laughs> Canada land. <laughs> and we got John Flagg, who is an athletic trainer and wellness director at Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy in White Plains, Maryland. He is the powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach at 301 Strong, also in White Plains, Maryland, and the owner of Rebuild Stronger, an online coaching platform for strength athletes. He's also the cl- a clinical athlete provider and lead instructor of our newest course, Clinical Athlete Powerlifting Certification. John, how you doing? Doing well. We actually have sun for the first time in a couple of days, so I'm jealous of your beach capades. There you go, man. In California. Beard's looking strong. When's the last time you oiled? <laughs> uh, two days ago. Nice. Is a nice okay. sound bite. Yeah. Yeah. And we welcome a very special guest, physical therapist, PhD, and assistant professor at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, UAB, Matt Itherburn. Matt, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, guys. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. We're really excited. So Matt just came out with uh, some new research on the ACL, which he's a lead author on. But before we get into that, can you tell our six listeners a little bit more about yourself and what's led to your current research tracks and interest in the field. And obviously, ultimately, what's led to the pinnacle of your professional career now, which is being on the Clinical Athlete Podcast. Yeah, this is the pinnacle of my career, I can say confidently. Um, yeah, so, I mean, you kind of gave the brief background, but I have a clinical background in sports medicine, PT, um, and um, kind of navigating my clinical practice. Um I was at Ohio State and um, saw a lot of patients uh, with ACL injuries and um, you know just felt like we were missing something in our rehab and our decision making um, as far as um, how to effectively get these patients back to sport. And um, that was really a lot of what motivated me transitioning into doing my PhD to try to take a scientific, kind of clinically relevant scientific approach to these questions. Uh, so I did my PhD there at Ohio State. I worked with Laura Schmidt and Mark Paterno primarily, um, who are both the um, lead um, investigators on this project um, that from the paper that we'll talk about today. Um, and so I was there, um, did my PhD there, uh, mostly focused on um, some of the relationships between strength, 
movement patterns and outcomes in young, primarily high school age athletes after ACL reconstruction. Um, and then I've been down here at UAB for the last couple of years. Did you get your PhD at Ohio State? I did, yeah. I was lucky enough to meet Matt at CSM this past year, but your research, I mean, if you, anybody go on Google Scholar and just look at the citations list, it's, you've just been putting out some really, really relevant stuff, just clinically relevant stuff. And, and you just came out with the latest paper in the most recent issue of JOSPT. And the title of the paper is Knee Function, Strength, and Resumption of Pre-Injury Sports Participation in Young Athletes Following ACL Reconstruction. And you were the lead author, Matthew Longfellow, alongside you, Stacey Thomas, Mark Paterno, Laura Schmidt. So that's a great cast of, of authors there. The purpose of the study was to examine differences in knee function and strength at return to sport clearance between young athletes. And these are like high school age athletes who successfully resumed. So three groups who successfully resumed pre-injury levels of sport following ACLR, those who did not resume pre-injury sport participation following ACLR, and then those who sustained a second ACL injury over the year following their return to sport clearance. So you guys were looking at how they tested at return to sport and then following these three groups kind of along that first year after returning to sport. So I'll throw it back to you. What made you guys ask this question and, and look into this specifically? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, there have um, been some studies and some previous work that have looked at both return to sport outcomes. So generally, like when we kind of compile how um, people do over time after return to sport, um, there have been um, several studies that have looked at this, um, as well as trying to identify factors that predict who, you know, are successful over time versus not, whether that means that they return to sports participation or, um, you know, the they sustain a second injury or something along those lines. But what we saw in the literature and looking at these previous studies is that usually the cohorts that were evaluated were fairly heterogeneous. So they have kind of a wide range of ages and previous activity levels. Um, or they were in very, very specific patient populations like professional athletes in a specific sport. And so we were kind of curious to see in our cohort, um, which again is a study that takes place at Cincinnati Children's Hospital um, and primarily includes high school age um, athletes that prior to their injury were participating in cutting and pivoting sports. So level one and two sports, soccer, basketball, football, um, lacrosse, sports of that nature. And so we wanted to know in this um, kind of defined age group of high school athletes how they did over time. Um, and if they were similar or different compared to what we know about either the general population of people after ACL injury or um, some of these um, very specific um, kind of professional athlete groups. So that was kind of what motivated us looking at this in our, in our cohort. So what were you guys thinking that you were going to see here? Can you, can you walk us through some of the methods, the three groups that you were looking at, the testing that you guys went through, and then what you thought you were going to see? Yeah, sure. So basically we, uh, to give a, an overview of the design of this study, we recruit and enroll patients after ACL reconstruction at the time that they have received uh, return to sport clearance. And so this comes from both their orthopedic surgeon who um, did their ACL reconstruction and whoever was involved in their rehab. Most of the time this is PTs, in some cases this was athletic trainers. So basically once they've received that um, verbal uh, return to sport clearance, 
we test them within basically four weeks of that time point. Um, and so that's when we um, enroll them in the study. And you guys did and the testing? Sorry. We do the testing. Oh, okay, yeah. So okay. we do the testing in, in the lab. And the testing um, has, so this study started in 2007 and is still ongoing. Um, and so um, we enroll them the time that they've re received return to support clearance, and then we follow them over time out to um, regularly two years with regular kind of check-ins in between that period of time. And what we were really curious here was if we test them at the time of return to support clearance, so we evaluate different measures, measures of their self-reported function, how they feel that their knee is doing, uh, measures of their muscle strength, um, and then also some functional performance measures, saying like hop tests primarily are what we evaluate. And so if we test them at that period of time and then we track them over time, um, do any of these um, functional strength or performance measures differentiate these kind of outcome groups over time? So um, I think something that's a little bit unique about this study is that we have no influence over when these patients get cleared to return to sport, what factors contribute to what, you know, went into that decision, um, whether um, objective criteria were used or not, um, or considered at all. But we really want to try and kind of evaluate the current state of clinical practice around these patients and how they're doing, and to kind of characterize them over time. And so, you know, even though these participants were cleared to return to sport, and all of them report planning on returning to level like their previous level of sport one or two level one or two cutting and pivoting sports we don't really know if they do or not and so that was a first question was you know how many of these high school age athletes actually return to the same level which we evaluated with um, something called the tegner activity scale which is a zero to ten scale ten being kind of high level com or competitive national level sports participation um, and then subsequent categories all the way down to zero, which is basically um, sedentary or injury or disability. And there are levels in between. Um, but there is a range from about six or five to, to ten in which uh, people are participating in sports, but at different levels of recreational participation versus competitive level. Um, and so we use that as our marker for when they got to a year later after their first testing visit, if people were at the same level or higher compared to where they were prior to their injury, we categorize them as successfully kind of resuming and maintaining their um, pre-injury sport participation. Those that went down, we said they were not successful. And then we also um, had that third group, which were um, the young athletes that returned and had a second injury in either limb prior to that one-year point, which is a pretty good chunk of this cohort. Um, and so, yeah, that was that was basically kind of the design and the and the question there. So, what did you think you were going to see? So, I mean, I think our hypothesis going into the study was that the group that successfully returned, you know, would um, have better strength, um, better functional performance, and better self-reported function at the time of return to sport. So they're basically, you know, higher functioning at that point in time, and they're going to be successful over time. Um, whether that meant higher absolute performance or higher, you know, more symmetrical performance, which is something that we can discuss based on the findings of this um, paper. We, we evaluated both, um, but that wasn't exactly what we, we found in this study. So yeah, I want to get into that. And 
just before that, you mentioned that it was interesting in the study. You guys didn't have control over who was making the decision of return to sport. You just kind of took them at that moment and within four weeks, you know, of the decision. But if you look, it, it, you know, for people following along here on the, on the actual study in table one, the time from surgery to return to sport clearance was not different between groups. So that was good. It was all about eight months, give or take one or two months. So the criteria, we don't know what was making the decision, but at least we know that the time from surgery was about the same. So I thought that was pretty good. So yeah, you guys hypothesized that, oh, it makes total sense that the group that has a successful return to sport will just test better subjectively and objectively. What did you guys actually find? Yeah, so I can kind of just, I'll just give kind of an overall summary, um, kind of going through each measure. So we compared the three groups. Um, and so to measure self-reported function, we used the questionnaire um, called the COOS, which is the knee injury and osteoarthritis outcome score, um, which is used often in um, patients after ACL injury. And so we compared across the different subscales of that measure, which measure different um constructs of knee-related function, we found no differences among the group in terms of their self-reported function um, at the time of return to sport. When we looked at their strength, um, so we tested quadriceps and hamstring strength using isokinetic dynamometer. Um, We tested at two different speeds, 180 and 300 degrees per second. Um, And when we looked at their absolute normalized strength in each limb, involved limb and uninvolved limb, again, we saw no differences among these three groups. Um, and then, um, and then lastly, we also looked at symmetry measures for both, um, for strength and also found no differences among the group. So the only place that we found differences between these or among these three groups was actually in their, um, absolute hop performance, which all the three hops that we tested, we just looked at the three dis- single leg distance hops. So the single hop, the triple hop and the crossover hop. And we took the absolute distance that they jumped on each leg and we normalized it to or divided it by their height, uh, anticipating that people that are taller or that have longer legs generally jump further, um, at least as a way to kind of try to um, level the results between these three groups. And what we found was that both the group that successfully resumed sport over that year and the group that had second injuries jumped further than the group that wasn't able to successfully um, resume or kind of maintain their sports participation over that first year. Um, and so that was based on absolute performance on both limbs. Um, and then the the, sex, the successfully resumed group also did jump a little bit further on a couple other hop tests, um, the crossover hop and the single hop, um, where the second ACL injury didn't. Um, but generally speaking, what we find is that the two groups that it seemed went back to the same level of sport, even though one of them um, included people that had second injuries, just jumped further um, or performed better on each limb. Um, And so that was kind of the main takeaway of what we found. So no symmetry differences across these measures, both um, quad and hamstring strength and hop test performance, which was contrary to what we anticipated and based on what we know from the literature. This is one of those where we just want to ignore it. Like it doesn't go, you know, it's like, uh, it makes sense. So, oh, the the group that had successful return to sport jumped further. It is, con- we'll talk about limb symmetry indices. I think you had some really interesting discussion there, but at least they jumped further. That makes total sense. Oh, wait, the group that tore also jumped further. Crap. 
So it's like, be a better athlete. Wait, don't be a better athlete. Uh, what? Talk to me a little bit about what you make of the results or what can we, what questions now can we ask for, you know, furthering this? Yeah. I mean, I think there are a few points that, that come up here that are important. So if we kind of focus on, um, you know, the lack of differentiation between the second injury group and those that we're able to successfully return to and maintain over that first year. Um, so both of these groups generally jumped further on both limbs um, and didn't differ across any measure. And so what that might speak to is that in both of these groups, um, we know very little about the, you know, the contributions of kind of overall underlying athleticism to successful return to sport. So we take a very clinical approach to our um, assessment um, of these patients. Um, but there may be just underlying athletic um, skill related factors or performance that enable people to go back after an injury that um, I don't know that we um, do a great job evaluating or under, I don't think we have a great understanding of right now. And so, you know, in theory, if both of these two groups that, um, you know, had at least adequate enough knee function to return um, and also were good enough athletes to return at their prior level uh, to competitive sports. Um, you know, they, they both are um, experiencing exposure to these cutting and pivoting sports, which are a primary risk factor for having an ACL injury. Um, and the lack of di differentiation between them, I think speaks to, um, you know, it's, I think it's a challenging question to answer to say, you know, how do we differentiate these groups? Again, this is just one cohort. Um, and there are other studies that have found risk factors for a second injury that we can incorporate into our clinical decision making, including strength symmetry and other factors. Um, so I think what it speaks to is that we just can, we need to do, you know, just continue to try to um, develop um, and test these um, return to sport decision making paradigms and, and, um, figure out how we can mitigate risk in these um, young athletes. I think another thing to consider here too is that um, we know that movement strategies or movement patterns are, um, are um, related to risk of primary and second ACL injury. And as a part of what we tested, or at least what we evaluated in the study, some measure of movement um, quality or movement you know, pattern um, wasn't a part of what we evaluated here. And so that may be a, another important contributor for second injury risk. Um, and so again, that, you know, having a kind of clinically accessible, um, movement assessment for these young athletes, may be another piece of this puzzle too. That, that answer makes, makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm curious if you, if you were in the position of being a clinician, working with one of these athletes, let's say you've been You've laid out the game plan in terms of what rehab is going to look like, and they've done well. You've been measuring these these sort of metrics throughout the process, and they've they've met these sort of return to play criteria um, that are based on this, the studies that we have at the moment. And they say, "All right, so I'm good to go now, right? I don't have to worry about it." We know that fear of reinjury is a is a pretty big predictor of um, of reinjury. So, what do you think might be a reasonable thing to say to that that young athlete in that situation? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you bring up um, fear of re-injury or kind of um, these um, psychological kind of readiness constructs. These are really important, we know from the literature, um, as they relate to return to sport success. But there is also some early evidence starting to show that um, they also are related to second injury. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a, I think we don't fully understand right now how psychological factors, whether they be fear or confidence, you know, are those, are those similar? Are those different? How do those relate to, um, risk of injury or success? They, they may, um, have opposite effects. Um, so I think, you know, there, we don't really know this, but there, my intuition is that there may be some healthy level. I don't want to say healthy level of fear, but in, in patients that are very confident, but maybe aren't physically ready or biologically ready from a, um, healing and recovery standpoint may be at risk just Mm -hmm. like, um, you know, maybe those who are highly fearful, but, but return. And maybe these are working by different mechanisms that we don't really understand right now. Sure. But we definitely know that the that psychological factors are play a big role in this process, no doubt. And that isn't something that we measured in this study that um, we tested, um, at least at the onset of the study. So um, I think it's a really good discussion to have. Well, as you as you brought up the uh, the, I don't know, the the healthy level of fear that we might uh, otherwise name in a minute, I think that makes sense. And it, it brings to mind um, that sort of U-shaped curve of um, estimation of one's ability versus actual ability and how if we overestimate our ability compared to what we can actually do, then performance usually ends up suffering versus if we um, underestimate what we can do, then also we have poor performance. So that that sort of ideal place to be is somewhere in the middle where we're, we're more or less in tune with what we can actually do. And just thinking back to a, a couple of cases of, of patients that I've worked with who have had an ACL reconstruction um we've kind of worked through that process and it it depended a little bit on their um their inherent disposition one of the people that comes to mind was inherently really cautious and a little bit fearful so i was trying to pump them up a little bit but still affirm that hey this caution is good it's helpful for us especially as we get you back into doing these these activities these sports because we haven't tried them out yet um and that prevented him from he played ultimate, um, ultimate frisbee, and he would not put himself in situations where he has to really uh, work hard to get after a, a pass or be battling somebody else for a position um, until he had a number of games and, and a bunch of hours of experience under his belt. And we had been able to kind of field test the stuff that we've been working hard on in the clinic. And as that happened, then he was able to l- kind of open himself up a little bit more and not worry so much because we, we knew what he could do, or, or at least more of what he could do. Yeah, and I think that's a really great point. It really kind of brings up this idea of return to sport being on a continuum. So it isn't a one point in time um, thing or a decision that, you know, toward end stage rehab, there should be incorporation of sport specific activities um, and even some level of sports participation which then transitions into return to sport, but there still is a big gap between return to sport and return to performance too, that I think is challenging to evaluate as a clinician um, sometimes. Um, 
but I think it's a big part of this this puzzle. And so you're basically alluding to, um, you know, in incorporating um, training and exposure to these activities that um, you know makes these athletes better able to adapt in. Um, you know, do what they need to do in their sport in a very unpredictable environment, um, which is very different than what typical rehab looks like for these patients, which is very, um, you know, cl- kind of closed environment and, um, and, um, Discreet you know, predictable and, and exactly. Um, and participating in sports is almost always the opposite of that. And, um, so I think figuring out ways that that can be incorporated in late stage rehab and and throughout that transition is really important. That begs the question: Are we discharging too early? Are we not giving them enough exposures within the clinic or within uh, a more athletic setting, uh, and, and kind of throwing them out there a little too early? And then to kind of follow up on that, Matt, if you could, were any of these kids in the study? part of a continued training program or anything after the fact that was led by you or, or by themselves? Was that possibly a, a indicator of return to performance? Yeah, that's a great question. We um, do track these kids over time. Um, to my knowledge, um, and I would have to kind of dig into these data a little bit. I'm not, I'm not really aware of any, that participated in kind of specific, you know, second injury prevention type activities or training. Um, most have a kind of gradual transition back to sport and we see them over time. Um, and they generally speaking, kind of like we saw in the study, either are able to successfully resume, they, um, decrease their sports participation over time or they have an additional injury. Um, but I think it's a really important question that, you know, what these athletes um, engage in um, outside of, you know, practice and games and the testing that we do may have an impact. Um, and we don't really know um, what that is. And that, I think, is one of the inherent limitations of an observational study. We try to collect as much data as we can. Um, but um, we can't really comment on causality here, only association. Um but I think it's a really great, a really great question. Going back to your first question, which was about, um, you know, are we releasing them or clearing them too early? Um, I think this is a really important discussion. So, you know, we saw that at least in this cohort, most of them are getting cleared on average. Again, um, this is just an average, but on average at about eight months. Um, we know from some longitudinal work, um, and research uh, from the Oslo Delaware co- cohort, which um, the first author on this paper is Hedgy Grindham, um, is published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. They looked at how time to return to sport was associated with um, risk of second injury over time, as well as what factors were related to this. Um, and they found that there was, um, for the first nine months, um, every month that was delayed, there was a reduction in risk until nine months. Um, 
and that strength was a factor that was related to um, reducing second injury risk. So I think that time plays a role, but I think we need to be careful and not just evaluating time. So I think that there are biological considerations from a um, graft integration, you know, kind of uh, what we might kind of call like a joint homeostasis perspective. We have this injury to the joint, we have surgery, we have a graft placed in the joint that's healing either, you know, with bone patellar tendon bone grafts, you know, bone to bone healing, or you have these plugs placed in this hamstring graft. Um, but, you know, that's not a ligament. And so we have this process of kind of ligamentization over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and what factor does that play? These patients have an effusion in their knee. Obviously, we know about the impairments like strength and other things. So all of this is, um, you know, all of these factors are kind of um, interplaying together over time. Um, and it takes time. Um, so it takes focused intervention, but there is still a time component. So I think we need both. Um, but I think what where we're trying to get away from is just making that decision based on time. Um, and so there have been several um, systematic reviews over time that have shown that when we look at what factors are used to clear patients for return to sport after ACL reconstruction, far and away, time is used most often. Um, by far. And then we see these other objective measures. So I think just evaluating and testing even these basic measures um, and and having some level of um, comparison to norms or to the uninvolved limb is better than the majority of work that we've seen published and probably to some degree a lot of what we see in clinical practice standard of care. So um, again, I think time is a factor as is um, strength and movement and knee-related function, as is psychological readiness, and a lot of other things that we're not measuring too. Yeah, there's a, another paper that when I was digging into all your stuff earlier, it, you used LSI and you used the hop tests as your objective measures for clearance. And then obviously time was, was in there. And of the people who had been cleared I think it was 13.9% of the people who had clearance had actually gotten past those two strength tests and the hop tests. Yeah. And that, that was a startling number for me to think that, you know, 87% of people didn't pass a lot of objective measures before kind of taking that leap back into sport. Uh, and it does point to time being obviously the biggest factor where people go, Oh, well, you know, you're nine months out, then go ahead, do your thing. But if you're not prepared, which is preparation is one of the things we talk about on here a lot. Uh, are you really ready? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was a study that was also published in JOSPT a couple of years ago. Um, Allison tool is the first author on that paper. Yeah, I think so it's 2017 that, or 2015, 2017, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, we were curious to see kind of you know a similar question, but to see you know we know what um, are you know at least kind of generally speaking um, return to sport criterion that are at least recommended. Which uh, what we evaluated in that study were you know how many have um, a patient reported you know function score above. 90 out of 100, how many have limb symmetry indices for hop test and strength above 90%. We looked at those all individually and then all combined. And that was and so fun in hamstring too. 
Yeah, and, yeah, quad and hamstring. And so what we saw was, um, like you mentioned, um, only 13 or 14 percent of I think about 120 um, young athletes in our cohort met all of them, even though they were, again, on average about eight months out. So I think it really does speak to time is a factor from a biological and a healing standpoint, but time isn't going to ensure that these patients, um, you know, are able to restore adequate strength and function. Um, and so it, you know, again, I think it's, um, it speaks to, you know, again, because we don't in this, in this cohort control any of the rehab or return to sport decision-making, it really is kind of a snapshot of what is, um, current clinical practice and decision-making. Um, and I think that finding, just like you said, it was kind of startling to us too, um, to see that. And that's been replicated or shown in a couple of similar studies since, which have found somewhere in that neighborhood, basically 15% or less of these cohorts of patients that have been cleared after ACL reconstruction are meeting um, even these standard thresholds or benchmarks that we um, have kind of established. Not even taking into consideration the fact that, you know, as we talk about in the paper we're um, discussing today, some of the issues with limb symmetry indices and how the uninvolved limb um, might get negatively affected um, as a part of the injury or uh, rehab or you know detraining or being out of sport or whatever that might be. Um, even even when we don't consider that, we just look at limb symmetry indices. Very few patients are getting to these thresholds. We talked with Mike Raymond a little bit about that. It was a lot of these studies aren't using batter aren't using the return to sport battery of tests they're using time as, as the main criterion and then that's that's that piece of the puzzle and then the other piece of the puzzle is that when we are using those battery of tests not everybody's passing them and they're still getting cleared so you have this kind of twofold issue here it was one reason why i liked your paper so much here because at least we know that all the participants got the same tests and we could track that going forward did yep. you guys, just out of curiosity, did you guys test at the one-year mark after return to sport? Did you retest some of these things? Yeah, so we do. So we, um, at regular intervals, test um, these these clinical measures, strength, hop test performance, and function. So those data weren't included in this, um, in this paper. Um, but we do see over time, so over the first year and over the second year, that... Um, that their strength and function does improve over that period of time. Um, but unfortunately, again, we're still seeing that a lot of them are having suboptimal outcomes, whether that's, you know, they're not able to return or they're having second injuries. And so I think what that speaks to is, you know, there is some, some threshold level that we need to get them to early for them to have success over time, even if they're continuing to improve over time. Were there limb symmetry indices above, let's say just isokinetic strength testing here, did they get to that 90% marker, these groups, or at least the group one and three? Yeah, so you know what, that's a good question. Uh, are you talking about at the time of like the initial testing visit? Yes. So, you know, I don't have, um, I would have to go, actually, I can tell you, let me look in this table, I'm trying to remember what the values were, yeah. Um, so actually, when you look at their limb symmetry data, which is in table two in this um, in this paper, 
we look at strength symmetry, all three groups are right around 90%, um, on average at least. So some are below and some are above. Um, and similarly for um, hamstring strength, most are above 90 and even 95%. Um, so again, there are a portion of them that are below these thresholds, but on average, they're pretty close um, to um, meeting some of these measures um, individually. Um, but again, I think it, what we see, and um, going back to the tool paper that um, you mentioned, is that when we look at a battery of tests, very few people are meeting all of them. Um, so it, I think, really supports the idea of testing in a um, multifactorial nature, evaluating different um, types of um, measures of knee-related function, patient-reported, psychological readiness, strength, performance, movement, um, because performance on one doesn't necessarily indicate, you know, adequate performance on another. With that point, can you talk a little bit about the limitations of a limb symmetry index in general? You've alluded to this a little bit, but why are, are those important historically, you know, the data behind those, but also just limitations with them that clinicians should be aware of? Yeah. So this is a really big discussion in ACL reconstruction, rehab, and return to sport decision-making right now. Um, I think one study that really highlighted kind of what might happen to the uninvolved limb over time from, you know, early after injury um, or early after ACL reconstruction until they get, um, you know, kind of progress throughout rehab toward the time of return to sport or even further um, was a study that was published by um, Liz Welsant, um, also in JOSPT a couple years ago. Um, I think the title of that study was like limb symmetry indices underestimate, you know, uninvolved limb performance or something along these lines. And basically what they um, did in that study is they had a cohort for which they tested um, both limbs uh, prior to ACL reconstruction. And again, at the time or around the time of return to sport clearance. And so they looked to see if they, so if they calculated limb symmetry indices uh, for the involved and the uninvolved limb using the uninvolved value at the time of return to sport, basically kind of characterize what that looked like. And then if they took the uninvolved limb value from back, you know, um, shortly after their injury, um, those limb symmetry indices were a lot lower. Um, and way fewer patients met the kind of 90% threshold if the uninvolved limb value was the one that was used shortly after their injury. And so um, I think that finding was really eye-opening for um, a lot of people to see um, what the potential for either due to bilateral kind of neurologic injury effects or detraining um, you know, by being out of their sport or focus on kind of, um, you know, single limb or injured limb kind of rehab, the effect that that might have on the uninvolved limb. So, you know, if you imagine in an ideal world that the uninjured limb performance and strength stays the same and the injured or reconstructed limb kind of over time comes up to meet it, um, that's the ideal use of a limb symmetry index. Um, unfortunately, 
it doesn't seem like that is always the case. So you might have this scenario where, you know, throughout rehab, the involved limb is getting stronger, but the uninvolved limb is maybe coming down to meet it. So you have a symmetrical, you know, patient who has symmetrical strength or performance. Um, but the, um, the analogy that's sometimes used is like, you know, riding a bike with two flat tires. Um, so you restore symmetry, but this athlete is not to their pre-injury capacity, whether that be strength or um, functional performance or um, whatever it might be. Um, so there have been several studies um, to kind of show this same thing, that the uninjured limb over time, if not you know, specifically addressed alongside the involved limb during rehab, might lead to this scenario where we're underestimating the capacity in the involved limb by comparing it to the uninjured limb. Um, and so I think that is the inherent um, potential concern with just the use of limb symmetry indices. Um, and so I think that supports also evaluating and comparing the function of the involved limb to other reference points. Um, and so that might be comparing their normalized strength or peak torque to some age or sex or sport match norms um, to know, you know, are they, um, are they, you know, where their non-injured peers are that play similar sports and are of, you know, the same sex and um, age. Um, also, if there's an opportunity to, to test the uninjured limb early in rehab, even if you, even if clinicians aren't seeing patients, you know, for prehab or something like if you're not seeing them between injury and ACL reconstruction, even if you're seeing them shortly thereafter, if there are some measures of the uninjured limb that you can test mm -hmm. early on, that might be a good benchmark to come back and compare the, the injured limb to over time, um, just as a kind of practical consideration for these patients. Um, trying to remember where else I was going to go with that, but I, you know, I think those are the concerns with limb symmetry indices. And if I can make one caveat to say all that said, we also have a lot of evidence to support that getting people to certain thresholds just based on limb symmetry is important. So I don't think we should throw it out the window. I think we should recognize the limitations in the use of symmetry measures, particularly in cases where there's a decline in uninvolved limb strength or performance. Um, but also know that we have a lot of evidence to support the use of limb symmetry indices, whether that's strength or hop test performance on um, you know outcomes over time. So it's a good discussion. It's important to recognize, um, but we also shouldn't, on the flip side of the coin, assume that limb symmetry um, has no effect or no importance either. So, you touched on a follow-up question that I had: was should we also factor in absolute peak values? And you mentioned that perhaps comparing to some age match norms or population match norms. And then with the results of your of the current paper here, showing that perhaps absolute values are important as well. You know, just another factor to consider. Do we have these norms to compare to yet? Is that something that we're working towards? So there are some um, data sets of um, sport-specific, um, I know for sure, single-leg hop test norms, um, potentially strength. I have those references somewhere. I can send them to you if you want to 
you know, post them somewhere or something. I have to dig in to remember um, exactly what those are. But yeah, I think that um, using a decision-making paradigm that incorporates symmetry, incorporates uh, training and evaluating absolute performance as well, whether that's absolute strength, absolute, you know, jump performance, like you um, indicated, Quinn, in this, in this study, you know, our findings that differentiated these groups were only based on normalized absolute hot performance and no other measure and not symmetry. Uh, and so this, again, like we talk about a little bit in the conclusion of this paper, it may indicate that we need to focus on training bilateral absolute performance uh, and evaluating it and comparing it, comparing it, comparing it against um, some kind of reference value. You guys have been doing the. You, you mentioned doing a study since 2007. Are you re, you're referring to the ACL relay work that you guys are doing there? Can you explain what what you're doing with that? And are you taking a lot of subsets in this data and making kind of these um, analyses, like in this current paper, and and what we sh- can expect and look forward to in the future from that? Yeah, that's a great question. So this is an ongoing um, prospective cohort study where we follow these young athletes over time after ACL reconstruction. Um, Like I mentioned earlier, we follow them standardly to two years where we're testing them at regular intervals. And then in a sub-cohort, we also brought them back three years after their two-year testing visit. So basically five years after the time of return to sport and retested them as well as did knee MRIs to evaluate their knee cartilage. Some of those data have been published. Um, a lot of this um, longitudinal work has been led by Laura Schmidt. So I've just kind of been lucky to have been involved with it during my PhD and to continue to collaborate on this project. But, you know, you're right. It is a, a, a longitudinal project that has been ongoing for 10 years. And so some, you know, I think that raises some questions about, you know, have have um, ACL reconstruction rehab practice patterns changed over time? Were the early patients the ones that were doing you know, really poorly and then the more recent patients doing better? We have looked at that a little bit and we don't see that that's the case. So when we look to see you know, um, how many patients are meeting strength thresholds or meeting you know, hot performance thresholds, if we look in you know, kind of... Um, group them over time, or we look in uh, quartiles of time, like the first four years, the next four years, so on and so forth, we don't really see differences, um, which is maybe slightly discouraging that the message isn't getting out there that, you know, that, that practice isn't, um, isn't changing. But I think, you know, we're building, hopefully, um, a body of evidence that's, um, that is telling the story. And I, and I hope that through avenues like like this, uh, podcasts and other, you know, social media distribution, that we get this information to clinicians to say this is what we're seeing, and these are areas that we can really improve, or these are things that we should really focus on measuring um, or testing or evaluating in these patients. To give some context on some of the numbers that you gave in the introduction of your paper, it was on average at all levels of sports and so not just competitive sports, a little over 60% return to pre-injury levels. And that's recreational. That's, that's what they were doing before for competitive level sport. It was 33 to 55% return 
ish, something like that, which is consistent. You guys actually found 59%. So 70 of the 124 athletes that you guys looked at made it, but that was still only 59% of the athletes returned or 56%, sorry, returned to their pre-injury levels. So to the point that you just made, we've still got a lot of work to do, but maybe we're in that conscious incompetence phase where at least we're, like you said, we're spreading the word and, and creating awareness and it's obviously a slow process to kind of gain momentum in this direction, but I think it, I, th I think things are uh, certainly looking up. Um, do you? What else can we expect coming down the pipeline from you? Whether be it from from that particular longitudinal data or what you got going on. Yeah. So, you know, I think what you'll probably see in the near uh, future out of this ACL relay cohort study is continuing to look at some of these longitudinal data over time. So these patients that we test out to two years and out to five years, um, what are early factors that are associated with, you know, who has even longer term success? Um, so we uh, published a study um, a few months ago that was looking at some of the imaging data. Um, so we looked at early um, cartilage change. So basically, we have um, MRI measures that can evaluate changes in the matrix um, of the cartilage prior to them developing radiographic osteoarthritis, for example. And so in this cohort, we brought them back and did this these MRIs to see, you know, are there factors early, you know, at the time of return to sport or shortly thereafter that are associated with who starts to develop early uh, kind of subclinical signs of osteoarthritis versus not. So I think you'll see some of those data um, continue to be published, um, as well as we are doing some work toward trying to develop clinically relevant second injury kind of screening tools, particularly as it relates to movement assessments. Um, so hopefully some of those data soon, they've been presented recently at, at CSM and, and whatnot. Um, so I think those are some of the upcoming things to to look for from this ACL relay cohort study. Um, and then um, for me um, specifically, I since I've been down here at UAB, um, we um, have also um, working with Mark and Laura um, started to do some work looking at novel ways to try to target late stage rehab interventions for these patients. Um, so thinking of ways that we can specifically target muscle performance in different ways, whether that be through force um, capacity, force, you know, development capacity in the muscles versus um, kind of velocity dependent measures. So um, we know that uh, things like rate of torque development is another big problem for these patients, not just, you know, how much force can they produce, but also how quickly can they do that? Um, power is the key factor in almost every sport related movement, which encompasses both of these items. Um, and so we are I'm starting to do some work looking at that. So some things along those lines, trying to figure out ways that we can really target rehab interventions, especially late stage for these patients. Um, so that may be on the horizon. We'll see how it goes. Um, but we're kind of in the pilot stages of that work right now. So that leads me to a, a question that Thankfully, you're doing that kind of work because it does lead me to this question. What do you say to clinicians in that late stage phase uh, who have a fear of 
re-injury in the clinic or pushing their athlete too much or doing too much in that late stage. Um, because there is a lack of power development and lack of strength in a lot of those late stage discharges. What do you say to those clinicians? I think we need to push these patients early and hard. I don't, I think that we need to build a base capacity, of strength or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and I don't think that we speaking generally or on kind of on the whole do a great job um, and this is obviously isn't targeted toward any, anyone or any any place, but um, as a profession overall in these patients, um, do a good job of creating sufficient stimulus for adaptation that's needed. So um, loading appropriately um, and programming exercise effectively, I think are big issues that are even outside of this very specific idea around, you know, how do we kind of better target force versus um, velocity related interventions. I think throughout the course of rehab, we build capacity to make them successful with some of these late stage interventions. Um, I think having progressive um, exposure is important. Moving them from a more closed to a more kind of open environment where they're having to make decisions and respond and react so that when they get on the field, they're able to do that or that just happens intuitively. Um, so I think it comes down to building capacity adequately and then um, allowing these athletes to use it, control environments and transitioning them toward environments that are going to be more similar to, to what they see on the field. Um, I think there's also some opportunities for some really cool stuff um, related to neurologic adaptations um, due to ACL injury and some novel interventions in that space. Um, if you guys get a chance, I'm going to plug him because he's my friend. If you get a chance to get Dusty Grooms on here, I would 100% recommend doing so. Um, I don't know if any of you have seen him speak, but he's doing a lot of work in this space around neurologic and neuroplast, you know, kind of neuroplasticity and neurologic adaptations to musculoskeletal injuries, mostly ACL injuries, how that might affect late stage rehab intervention. So, you know, I think there's a lot of potential opportunities um, for us to get better. Uh, what I think some of our work is highlighting is that even the basics, you know, um, restoring strength, restoring strength symmetry, testing and measuring these things um, are areas that we overall as a profession can improve for these ACL reconstruction patients. So then after that, what advice would you give an athlete or the parent of an athlete who's been discharged and wants to get back to sports after pouring through all this data that you have tons of? Yeah. So, I mean, I think education throughout is really important. You know, there is still this um, expectation that ACL reconstruction rehab is going to be six months and people are going to be back to sport. Um, despite a lot of data showing that, you know, recovery takes longer, people aren't meeting or getting to, you know, sufficient um, strength and performance and functional thresholds by that point in time, that early return is, you know, um, potentially a risk factor for um, having additional injury. So I think having clear communication throughout the course of rehab, but especially early on, as far as expectations is one thing. Um, but I think you need to be clear with people that, you know, this is what we know. 
um, there is a high risk of having additional injury. Um, we don't, we can't predict if you're going to or not. There are a lot of factors that contribute to that, but what we can do is get you to, um, you know, to, to a level or to a threshold that to the best of our knowledge right now mitigates that risk to the best of our ability. Um, but I think there's always going to be a risk with return to sport. Um, you know, there to some extent is, you know, risk of injury in playing any sport, but particularly if we focus in on ACL injuries and returning after having one, um, that risk is way higher. Um, so I think again, we have a lot of work to, to do to really hone in on what are the best, the most sensitive, you know, the most predictive criteria that we can use to help make this decision. Um, but we do have at least some evidence now um, to help in this decision. So I think it really starts with testing, knowing where these patients are, objectively testing. So, you know, testing strength with manual muscle testing isn't enough in this patient population, um, as is doing some kind of a closed chain strength test where they can, um, you know, in the example of quad strength, um, uh, compensate or avoid loading their near their quads. Um, so I think we need objective measurements of strength and, and performance for sure. Um, and at least in, ensure that these patients are getting to, um, some of these thresholds. And what's awesome about you, Matt, is that you're doing the research and you're also a clinician. So it's, you see these things from both sides, the, those kids are so lucky though. Those kids that tore their ACLs are so lucky to have you, um, Will you? I'm so flattered. Yeah. <laughs> I want to tear my ACL and then I'm going to fly to Alabama. So don't I do that. Your, okay. Wow. Have you? It's okay. I, I don't run and cut hard enough or fast enough to uh, to subject myself to those forces. Do you? When your new stuff starts coming out, and will you consider coming back on the show to talk about that? Yeah, for sure. Anytime. This is fun. Like this is a cool forum, um, and and from what I can tell audience because it's not just clinicians. So, you know, we think about return to sport and all of the the players in this process, all of the, you know, quote unquote stakeholders um, from the patient or the athlete first to the clinicians to obviously the, you know, the athletic team as well, whether that's, you know, performance, strength, conditioning, coaches, so on and so forth. So there are a lot of stakeholders in this process. And um, I think being able to get this information to to more than one audience is really important to know that there are a lot of uh, factors that go into this decision, that there are a lot of stakeholders and that this decision and this process, again, isn't a finite um, kind of one time thing and that there should be multiple people involved in the decision. So I think shared decision making is a really big piece um, coming from all of these different stakeholders and you know things to evaluate. And so I think reaching all of them is cool. So thanks so much for being on the show. This was, this was awesome. Uh, I, I learned a ton hearing you talk. Where can people connect with you? Where can they um, find more of your stuff? All of that. Yeah. So um, from a uh, social media perspective, professionally, I'm primarily on um, Twitter. So my Twitter handle is first name, last name, Matt Itherburn PT altogether. 
Uh, so that's where most I'll, I'll usually put most of that, most of the stuff there. Um, you know, we've been kind of trying to purposefully, um, think about ways that we can communicate this science and these research findings, um, in the most, um, kind of easily, um, read and, um, you know, kind of, uh, packaged format. And so we've been trying to incorporate a lot of different approaches to that infographic creation and stuff and pushing a lot of that stuff out through social media, which I think it's been really effective from a communicating the message and exposure standpoint, um, for some of this work. So most of that stuff I'll push out, um, on, on Twitter. So. Awesome. And before I forget, I actually saw Dusty Grooms speak at CSM this past year and my just blew my mind. Yeah. So get, get them uh, that, on. Okay. Uh, we will. <laughs> That's actually, yeah, yeah. Here. There you go. Perfect. I, again, thank you so much. This was awesome. We would love to have you back on the show again. And um, hopefully maybe we'll have seven listeners and the, the word can spread to even greater audiences. There but, you go. Yeah. Thanks again, Ma- Matt. Maximizing impact right there, here. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks, Matt.